This is the Game Dev Field Guide bonus episode number 20. Today's special guest, Carlos Coteau. This episode of the Game Dev Field Guide is sponsored by the patrons. Everyone gets it for free, and it's all thanks to the generosity of the patrons. If you'd like to become a patron and help support the show, as well as vote on episode topics and get a special Discord role, I will leave a link for that in the show notes. With the intro out of the way, let's move on over to our first segment of the show. The first segment of bonus episodes is always a game we play called Buff Debuff. This is a game where people in the community offer one phrase or single sentence topics, and I don't really do any research. I kind of just quick fire say what's on the top of my head about that topic, and I will say if I think it's buffed or debuffed. Buffed would obviously mean it's good or trending in the right direction, and debuffed means uh, I think it's not so good or maybe trending downward. So let's start with our first topic. Our first topic is the combat racing genre. I think combat racing is slightly debuffed. And I think it's that way because combat racing in the way that it is presented as a genre, I think actually takes two groups of players um, who like different things about combat racing and they're conflicting. If you're someone who likes racing... You know, that's a very different play style than someone who likes more of like the combat destruction side of things. And in this genre, they're at odds with each other. So I think you actually end up getting like a watered down version of both. In my mind, you could have two different genres where both would shine. A strictly vehicular combat genre and a strictly racing genre. And sure, maybe you can borrow small elements of one or the other. But to play that genre right down the middle of combat and racing... I just don't think it works uh, today, or at least I think there's better options to satisfy both audiences. The next topic is local split screen. I think local split screen is slightly buffed, and I think it's even more buffed on certain consoles or platforms. And maybe even it goes into the debuff territory on other platforms. And by that I mean I see a lot of indie games that are made for PC only that have a local split screen. And I think in that sense, it might actually be a little bit debuffed because it's just not how people play local split screen games. There's not too many people, at least in my friend groups or in just people that I see play video games. I mean, how many people really play local split screen on PC? If you have a gaming PC, then odds are you have a pretty good or at least viable internet connection to play a multiplayer game And in that case, I just think the multiplayer experience is better. On console, however, I think local split screen works really well because you have to think about the environment that people use console games, right? Like a console is usually set up in the uh, living room, I think, probably for most people. And this is a really good environment for split screen. I think the Nintendo Switch did something really smart and took this idea of having, I don't know, the ability to have local split screen anywhere. And yeah, they really they really thought about the use case. Where are people going to use the console? And I think you should do the same if you're looking at making a split screen multiplayer game. The next topic is factory and automation games. 
I think this genre is definitely buffed, not because of my own personal preferences, but because I think this shines a really good light or is a really good example of reaching an audience, a specific audience who really enjoys a specific thing about a game. Just think about all the people in your life. I'm sure that you know someone who does have that very like organization and automation kind of way of thinking, right? They're always looking for efficiencies or ways of making processes better. I myself formerly worked as an engineer, so I know tons of these people. And before this genre existed, there wasn't like a pure distillation of what they enjoyed about that in video game form. And I think that's exactly what this genre does right. It's a pure distillation of fun for those people who really enjoy looking at a process and making like a, a micro change to it that increases the efficiency of it. There are people out there who really enjoy that and this is the perfect genre for them. It makes me think about what other kind of tiny like life experiences or things that people enjoy about general life that don't have a video game genre representation yet. I think thinking about it that way maybe uh, might show some insight to opportunity. The next topic is war games as an indie. I think this is a really, really broad topic. I don't really know what to say whether or not it's buffed or debuffed. There was a thread with this, and I think at its core, the person was wondering if they should make a World War II game as an indie, but even then, it's still, it's pretty broad to say. I guess I will say that war games are slightly buffed as an indie. Um, it kind of depends if you're doing it for money or just doing it as a hobby. First off, I think we should say war is obviously one of the most intense experiences in real life, and because I'm a very much... Um, like, I like to focus on the emotions of games and what it evokes. I think it's a good topic to explore, but it's such a general topic. I mean, it can be everything from extremely exciting to extremely scary to extremely tragic. It can be cold and analytic. It can be spiritual. It can be psychedelic. It can be so many different emotions. There's so many places to go with it. It's why I think war in general is such a explored topic in not only video games but all media so yeah i guess i would say it's slightly buffed the next topic is hyper casual as a genre i would say hyper casual is debuffed if you are a indie developer i actually i don't mind hyper casual games i got my start making my very first game i ever shipped actually was a hyper casual game this was back when I was making mobile games. But what I learned pretty fast is it's an extremely competitive environment and one where um, the project turnover has to be super, super fast. The only way to compete in hyper-casual is to make game after game after game just looking for that core mechanic. And once you find a good one, it's going to get taken by everyone else. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's a real slog. And I actually, I don't mind playing the hyper-casual genre just when I need, like, something to distract me for a little bit. But to be in that industry, it's, yeah, it's just not what I enjoy about game dev. And, yeah, you think, um, you think like, getting a game on Steam is really competitive and hard and having, like, an indie hit on that is hard. Uh, doing it on mobile is a million times harder. And competing in hyper-casual, it's just, I don't know, it's just not for me. So for that, it's debuffed. The next topic is opposite character design. An example given was 
like a small character being a tank and a big character being a healer or, you know, something else with less life. I think this is actually debuffed. Um, if you go back and listen to the character design episode I did, we talked about, um, like, the aesthetic design of your character. And I know recently in the, in the podcast we've been talking about uh, how a game's mechanics should match its aesthetics. And, yeah, I'm just not a big fan of, like... I, I like subverting the player's expectations, but not in this way. It's kind of like you're playing with the genre norms and changing the genre norms... And I do think it's good, like I said, to subvert expectations, but that's like a that's like a one-off thing, right? Like you don't want to constantly be subverting expectations because then the player has no idea. They can't like lock on to what the identity of the thing is. And a character's design is going to be with you for the whole game long, at least the gameplay design. So, uh, you know, I, I think having like opposite character design when it comes to its aesthetics and its gameplay mechanics... Yeah, I, d I don't think that's actually subverting expectations. That's just changing the genre norm or a expected norm. A better way to do it would to introduce a story element or something like that for one level or one arc of the story where maybe a really strong character has lost their powers. Then you are subverting the expectations, you're changing up the gameplay, and it contextually makes sense. And, uh, yeah, I think it's just better. So, yeah, opposite character design on the whole, I think, is debuffed. Next, we have gender-locked romance options. I think this really depends on the style of the game. And this is something that's actually kind of going to dovetail nicely with what we've just talked about, with the last episode being on JRPGs and the difference between JRPGs and Western RPGs. In JRPGs, I mentioned that there are defined characters. You don't play as... Um, someone who maybe you could see yourself as, you play as a defined person. Whereas in Western RPGs, the main character is oftentimes you. You get to customize the character and make them look however you want. And in ones with more mature themes, often you can change the romance options. So yeah, I think gender-locked romance options can be buffed when they're used in the right sense, right? Like if you have a character that is well-defined, the gender they are attracted to is going to be something that's part of their character. But, for instance, in something that's more like a Western RPG, it might make sense for you to be able to customize that about your own character because you're not playing someone who's well-defined. You're playing maybe as yourself or some other person you came up with. The next topic is devlogs and whether or not they are helpful to the players or people outside or helpful to the developer. To me, I guess it just really depends on what kind of devlog you're making. I, I will say overall, I think they are slightly debuffed or at least they're not what you might think based on this question. 90% of devlogs nowadays are for the purpose of making content, right? If you, if you are existing online pretty much in any format, making content is kind of king. It's like the number one way to grow your brand. And devlogs are kind of a uh, staple piece of content for game developers. It gets interest in your game, it gets interest in yourself, and it plays well because there are a lot of people who like to fantasize about being a game developer, and these videos allow them to, I don't know, like, 
live vicariously through the through the devlog. And that's only one style. There are other devlogs that are educational, right? They talk about why they made the decisions. There's the ones that I obviously mentioned, like the day in a life of a game developer. Maybe you want to like see what it would be like. But as in the context of this question, why I said it was debuffed is I'm not sure so sure it's um it's helpful for the developer other than it basically serves as uh, marketing. But I think there are better ways of kind of looking at your own processes and methods and how your game's coming together for, I don't know, learning more about yourself and your work. The last topic for the day is AI-generated art. Now, if you've been paying attention uh, to the game dev world lately, you'll know that AI-generated art has exploded. There are lots of free tools out there now, and the tools are getting pretty good, almost scarily good. I have been using AI-generated art for my current project, and I will say it's not as easy as people think. It's not like you can just type in a prompt and there you go, you have a perfect thing. A lot of it is about crafting the perfect prompt to get the look you're going for, and even then I still have made alterations to the picture through Photoshop or GIMP to kind of improve or get something that I was really looking for. But still, I think it's an extremely, extremely powerful tool, and it's still only in its infancy. I mean, it's really only existed at scale now in the game dev world for maybe a couple months. Ten years from now, I think we're going to be blown away by what this tool can do. And there is sort of a side conversation to this um, about the ethics and law around AI-generated art. As for the law side of it, uh, and copyright law and stuff like that, I would say there is a lot better people to listen to other than me. And for the ethics side, I don't know, I'm, I'm still conflicted about it. Obviously not too conflicted as I'm using the AI-generated art myself, but there is a conversation about um, these models being trained on other people's work, right? This is how these models learn to draw. They looked at thousands and thousands, probably actually millions, of other artworks, these super large data sets. And through a learning algorithm, they learned how to draw. On one hand, there's no way, uh, there's no possible way that they got um, permission from all of these artists to do this. But on the other hand, this is how machine learning and machines versus humans, that classic conundrum, has always happened. I mean, automation has replaced tons of jobs. I think what I thought wrongly about AI is that art would be like the last bastion of things to get replaced by uh, automation. I thought of all things, art would be safe. This is because I do believe there's an emotional element to art. Uh, there's like a human essence, one that machines can have. But if you look at it analytically, um, art has no defined outcome of what is good. I mean, the idea of what is good art is up in the air. Isn't there a famous art gallery um, exhibit where someone just came in and duct taped a banana to the wall? If that can be considered good, then I think um, a lot of things can be considered good. And with, like I was saying, with no defined outcome, it actually makes sense that automation would come for that first because the margins of error are super, super large. When almost anything can be good with, you know, a few basic rules, then all you have to do is generate lots of things, and odds are one of them's going to be good. So, yeah, I think there's a really interesting conversation to talk about there about 
that classic debate of uh, automation. I think in most cases, though, AI tools will end up helping the industries that they are in so long as the right um, guidance, I guess, is put in place. And I think right now um, we're living in like the Wild West era of this new tool. And for me personally, it's unlocked a new level of creativity in my game dev process. And I got to imagine it has done the same for tons and tons of other creatives. So for that, AI-generated art is slightly buffed. And that's going to do it for today's Buff Debuff. If you have any topics you'd like to hear, you can go on to the Discord and just type the topics in the Buff Debuff channel. We're getting to the point now where I have had some repeats or uh, just things that I've already answered in a different episode. So if I skipped yours... It's probably because I either A, responded to it in the like text portion on the actual channel, on the Buff Debuff channel, or we've talked about it in a previous episode or a previous Buff Debuff segment. So yeah, I don't want anything to anyone to think I'm excluding them, um, just the answer is already out there. So with the first segment out of the way, let's move on over to the second segment of the show. The second segment of the show is a key thought from a special guest, and today's episode's special guest is Carlos Coteau. Carlos is currently working on Universe 51 Tannhauser Wars, which is a multiplayer action FPS. And today he has a speech about production tips for beginners. So without further ado, everyone, please welcome Carlos Coteau. Hello there, so my name is Carlos and before we begin I want to thank Zach for inviting me to be part of the Game Dev Field Guide podcast. A little bit of a background on myself, I'm currently a developer on a game called Universe 51 Ten Other Wars, uh, which is an arena shooter, first person shooter. I've been playing games my entire life and back in 2016 I decided to study 3D modeling and animation, uh, not yet having decided what I wanted to do with it. Uh, because you can go multiple paths with uh, with 3D. You can go, uh, you know, architecture, industrial production, movies, films, uh, games, um, you know, whatever. Uh, at that point, I had not yet decided what I wanted to do. Uh, and then for two years, I studied uh, the whole 3D pipeline from concept to even a bit of engine implementation of the assets, along with some other areas like uh, animation and even a bit of uh, programming just general programming nothing to do with with games at the end i did an internship at uh, a very recent uh, game dev studio where i was in charge of creating a 3d animated short film based on a script and the storyboard that were handed to me and before the end of the internship i was offered a position at the studio and i've been working with them ever since Uh, so for four years now 2018 to 2022 at the same time while I was working there, I, I kept studying for yet another two years. This time, the course was already very game dev focused. It still still had a lot of uh, 3D and 2D uh, and animation, but there were some new areas like uh, audio, you know, just music and uh, SFX, some more intensive programming than the first course, and even some heavier work with game engines. And for me personally, I got the opportunity to experiment with 
you know, leading and coordinating a team for the first time. I got to lead uh, a class of 15 to 20 people, my, my classmates, using the studio's most recent video game, which was at that point, uh, I don't know if we had decided on a, on a name yet, but I think so. Uh, it was what eventually became uh, what is now Ten Other Wars. And you know, that's when we started working on it, so that was late uh, 2019. I thank my colleagues for the trust they had in me, uh, as well as my teachers and the head of the studio for letting me do that. Uh, it was a great experience and for the past three years I've been doing all kinds of stuff at this studio, um, especially due to it having just been created. So yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. We're all uh, kind of starting out, learning as we go. That's uh, basically what I do from like project management to 3D to the art, audio to coding, uh, community management and even sorting out all the stuff with publishing a game on Steam for example. Yeah, I do. I'm kind of a jack of all trades. And that's why for today's podcast, I chose to talk about production tips for uh, beginner game developers. Um, kind of an all-arounder, 15-minute uh, kind of talk through some tips that I've gathered along this uh, six years that I've been uh, working on this. I managed to put together a list of 10 important tips and some of them might be useful for uh, everyone and not just game developers. Uh, and others might be useful for uh, every area and not just in your uh, game development uh, career. Stick around and hopefully I can be of help to you. So jumping right into it, the first thing you want to do is make a game from start to finish as soon as possible. You can just build a simple game loop at first with uh, placeholder assets. Um, and even if the game is not that good, there's still value in going ahead because there's a lot to learn about the whole process from start to finish, including things like marketing the game and posting the game on Steam. Uh, Steam is just an example. Most people don't think about this when, when they, they think about making games. They, they just think something along the lines of uh, art and programming and that's all you need to make a game. When in reality, obviously, the, the whole process involves a lot more than that. Um, and, you know, you some, some things you only find out uh, when you need to do them, you're not even where you need to do them. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot to learn by just going ahead from start to finish on a game instead of you know getting stuck, uh, starting out a project and then uh, you know you get a few roadblocks and you decide to just leave it and start another one. Obviously, that's not that's not the correct way. You're you're always gonna gonna get stuck at those first twenty percent. You won't be able to predict what's gonna happen on your next project, and then you'll get stuck maybe at thirty percent. But still, that's that's not a lot. So just make one from start to finish, even if it's not that good. There's that old saying that um, your first ten games will be bad, so get them out of the way as soon as possible. And I totally agree with that. So. Yeah, make the first uh, the first tip is make a game from start to finish as soon as possible. This is kind of a segue to the next tip, which is start out with simple and quick prototypes and get the thing working, whatever you're building, get it working, and then go back and build on top of it if if you need to. Uh, so just aim for what you can do right now in an acceptable time frame, and even if you feel like it's not the best, just uh, you know do what you can do in a in a short time frame and second time second second time around you'll have learned enough uh to you know build it better the second time uh 
uh, now you know how it works uh, and even if you prototype quickly you'll have enough time to, to make it better this is a never-ending cycle for uh, all your life and not just in game dev or at least while you're digging into unknown paths you're always that's that's my approach to uh, when I'm doing something new just get it going from start to finish and just uh, in a simple way and then go back and build on it on it if you have the time so third tip get feedback but take feedback with a grain of salt especially from non-developers there's three types of people who will play your game and give you feedback there's those who've never developed a game and don't know how it's done and that's okay, I mean, it's to be expected if they've never made a game, they don't know what it takes to make one. And then you have those who have a general idea of how it's done. They've seen a couple of videos or read a few things or they've talked with friends who have developed games. And then you have those who've also developed games or are developing games. Generally, the first type, uh, they'll ask for things they'd like to see in your game without much regard to what is possible in your situation or even what would make the game better or what would make sense for the game or even the studio. The second type is kind of the same but they'll have a better understanding of what's easy and hard to do and may have some good design ideas which make sense for your game or, or your business, let's say, your studio. And the last type will give you the best advice according to what's reasonable to your game and your situation. So, take all the feedback you can from all types of players, but analyze it rationally to understand what makes sense to your game and what is possible to do. Uh, a, very a very famous example is players asking for multiplayer support as if it was just adding you know, a join or invite button to your menus and suddenly you can play with other people, obviously it, that's, not, that's not that simple. Another common example is players asking for console support or PC support as if it was just a matter of exporting to the desired platform and then it will work. Obviously again, it's, it's not that simple. And in some situations it might not even be possible to add multiplayer to your game because you know, you're a solo dev and need to work on other aspects of the game for example and publishing on consoles might not be what you want if your target audience is PC players for whatever reason. Players will still ask for that, uh, but maybe, you know, your game, uh, that's not in the plans for your game. So, you know, take all the feedback you can, but analyze it rationally. So fourth tip, it's perfectly fine to reuse assets and code, uh, be it your own or from other people. As long as it's all legit, obviously, you can get tons of useful stuff even for free. So take advantage of that, just make sure it's available for your intended use, like if it's um, available for commercial use or non-commercial, personal, whatever. Just uh, make sure you're acquiring the assets, uh, you know, in a legitimate way and using them. For example, in Tenazer Wars, we had to make use of 3D asset libraries because it would be impossible to create all the assets with the small team we have. So we just put our 3D artists to work on the most important assets and assets which we weren't able to find on uh, 3D asset libraries. And the rest is just from assets from libraries and, and then we modified, modified the materials and uh, so it, they, would fit, uh, they would fit the levels better, our levels. So yeah, that's, that's one way to do it. Just get assets from libraries and then modify them uh, especially the materials in a way that fits your, your game. 
if you're able to do that. Uh, so the next tip, fifth tip, is about software. Uh, free software is not all that bad. You can create some impressive things using only free software, and every day it gets more accessible. Every day you see, you know, some amazing, um, amazing work with uh, using only free free software. Some examples are uh, Blender for 3D modeling, for example, Unreal Engine, uh, Unity, and Godot for game engines, uh, GIMP, Krita, and Sketchbook for image editing, Audacity, Cakewalk, and GarageBand for uh, for audio and music, and then to post your game without you know having to pay any any fees, you can use uh, Itch.io. Which is a great platform if you're if you're trying to do everything for free. Special mention to Blender, by the way, which uh, you know I've mentioned for 3D, but you can actually do a lot of stuff there, um, and you can even make uh, you can even prototype simple games in Blender without even using any coding. So, and that's just one free software. So, the next tip I want to give you is don't worry about personal labels. Do the work you want to do or you need to do and don't think about what that makes you so if you need to or want to make some 3d models but you plan on being a programmer that doesn't mean you shouldn't do those 3d models being well-rounded is good and it makes you aware of the whole pipeline of the whole development pipeline and also if you're unsure of what you want to be being part of the whole process of developing a game will help you find the area in which you may want to specialize if you're thinking of specializing so um you know just Forget about even like you studied programming, for example, and for your game you need to do some 3D models, and you're actually good at uh, at that. Whatever you studied programming, but you need to do 3D models, so just uh, just do them. Don't worry about the label. So the next tip is save your work often and keep the old versions, so that you can look back on it later and compare how far you've come. Um, you can even make regular events for that, like a year in review where you look back on all the things you've done in the past year or compare your, your work today to how it was a year ago, for example. And this is especially helpful when um, you need a motivation boost or when you don't feel good about your work. Just look back on it and say and see how far you've come, basically. The next tip is... To learn about everything in the world around you and even if it's not deeply just learn about everything and this will eventually be helpful for your work as a game developer uh, and sometimes it'll be just for the small things and you won't even notice it um, like for example a good example I can come up with right now is chessboards I've seen a, a tons of chessboards with the pieces placed on it and the board is rotated 90 degrees relative to the pieces, which means the squares on the top left and bottom right will be dark squares instead of light squares, and that's that's not how you set up the the chessboard. Uh, or, for example, the queens placed on the on the opposite color square, uh, and that's not the the right way. The correct way is to have the light squares on the bottom right and top left corner, and each queen should go on on the on their own color, so the dark queen should go on the dark square in the center alongside the king, uh, and the light light queen should go on the light color square uh, in the center alongside the king. So you know this this is obviously a, a very specific example, and uh, a lot of times it will even go unnoticed, unnoticed, especially if it's 
not that important to your game but uh learning about a lot of things will add up to creating a, a better experience overall the ninth tip is about the brain generally speaking your brain has a logical and a creative side so that means you can listen to a podcast or you know some other learning uh, material which requires listening and logic while you do creative work at the same time and your brain will still be able to do both at the same time that's easy multitasking uh you can be i don't know editing editing some images or you know doing some some drawings or whatever doing creative work uh while listening to podcasts uh teaching you about something else uh and i do that all the time it works for me this is my own experience so it might not work for everyone so just experiment uh with what works best for you keeping in mind that you know uh your brain can do both things at the same time one logical thing and one uh creative thing F for example i cannot be you know writing or programming and uh listening to you know a podcast at the same time i need to be listening to music for example which doesn't require which is like a creative input while i'm doing a logical output let's say uh while you know if i'm doing 3d work which is a creative output i can be listening to a podcast which is logical input so you know the your brain can do both at the same time that's easy multitasking if you can if you can do it so the 10th and last tip short and sweet is to just keep at it games are hard and some days it'll be harder than others but you just you know some days you'll have to work on things which don't feel so pleasurable to work on but that's just how it goes just keep doing it and you'll get it done and you'll become good at it and then it'll be worth it uh just you know keep uh, keep working on your on your games you can set objectives and try to reach them and as long as you keep doing it you'll you'll be able to to reach them so i guess that's it that's the 10 tips I I like this experience and once again I want to thank Zach for inviting me to to be part of this of this podcast. I hope I can be around soon enough again. So see you everyone. Have a good one. And there you have it. 10 tips from Carlos about game development and production. I think there's a few tips in here that really, really um, piqued my interest in things that I think are true. There was a good tip in there about feedback and understanding the quality of feedback based on who's giving it. I like the tip about labels and not worrying about if you are a programmer and you need models, just make some models. That is very much in line with the idea of the Swiss Army Knife game dev that I talk about uh, here on the show. So yeah, I really thought there was a lot of value in this episode. And if you did too, you should give Carlos a follow on Twitter. I will put his Twitter handle in the show description. And if you have any further questions for him, feel free to tweet him or reach out to him on our community Discord because he is on that as well. That goes the same for me. I'm on Twitter at underscore Zachavelli underscore. Uh, feel free to reach out. With that, I'm going to end the episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Game Dev Field Guide.